1: All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Tom Donowski today. It's December 13th, 2023. We're at Stoller Family Estate in Dayton. Tom, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Our first question that we always ask is why wine? Well, I should start by saying,
2: as I said just a few minutes ago, to acknowledge the fantastic work that Linfield has done documenting our wine industry's history and the institution's history, too. It's just a fantastic service, and this body of interviews you've got is, is super. Um, Thank you. I, I came to wine, a little bit about my story is born and raised Pacific Northwest High School in Beaverton College University of Oregon and uh, from there I went back to New York working for several years uh, in advertising and brand management uh, with uh, the Saatchi Agency Network and with Kraft Foods and when we decided to move out uh, from the Northeast to come back and start our family my wife Jenny and I wanted to return to the Northwest and after about seven years in New York a great job came available up in Seattle with coca-cola in a marketing role so took that and moved back out west but it wasn't long after that that coca-cola was interested in kinda consolidating all of their West Coast people down in Southern California which didn't fit our growing families uh, needs too well so I was looking around for work And the Chateau Saint-Michel winery had a vacancy. And when I was talking to the guy who would become my boss, uh, he said, you know, we don't worry too much about wine knowledge. We can teach you and surround you with wine, which was good because I had very little. He said, but what we need is, you know, disciplined consumer packaged goods marketing and brand management uh, expertise. That's where you could help us. So I came into wine that way and for eight years i was the marketing director at chateau saint michelle up in washington state but of course they own the erath winery Uh, they now own the a to z and the rex hill brands such that saint michelle just like in washington is now oregon's largest producer but that wasn't true at the time and so um from uh, saint michelle i went to go work at starbucks for a few years there were so many great similarities between coffee and wine. You know, both are value-added agriculture. Wine goes with food, coffee goes with dessert. They're single-farm coffees and single-vineyard wines, and they're both layered with complexity and aromatics, and it was a really fascinating way to to, uh, kind of move my experience um, over to a different category. And then, in 2011, when the Oregon Wine Board job became available, it interested me as a chance to return to the state where I was raised, but also to be a part of an industry that we had admired at St. Michel for years and years. Oregon just seemed to really have it dialed in. They had a signature varietal that helped break the door down where Oregon wines weren't known. They were known for just extraordinary quality around the world. And there was just an absolutely fantastic community of people here. It's true in Washington too, but they're a little bit more, um, uh, they're structured differently in Washington state where one company is such a very, very large uh, influence on the state's industry, a positive influence. But here in Oregon, it's a much more diversified constituency. And so this was the first time I had ever worked in a not-for-profit kind of environment. Um, But I really liked bringing some of my management history to this role and um, uh, I think over the last 12 plus, now I'm in my 13th year, we've had a really, really nice run and have just, I tell people I just was lucky enough to find a parade and just get right into it because Oregon was just really, really cooking well and we've just tried to fuel the fire.
1: So we'll catch back up there in a second, but I'm curious about your kind of your work before wine and before coming to Oregon. So tell me a little bit about your time with like Coca-Cola and places like that. What were you working on in the marketing world there and what kind of compelled you to go down that path?
2: Sure. Well, I knew when I was in college that advertising program at the University of Oregon fell under the School of Journalism. So I had a journalism degree, but I wasn't really burning with ambition to go write news stories. and edit them, so I knew I kind of wanted to go into advertising. I like the the aspects of advertising that appealed to me were the opportunities to you know learn about different businesses. You get exposed to different product categories when you're working in advertising and you get to kind of meld some of the discipline and science of market research with the creative expression that results in TV ads and podcasts and, and websites and all that stuff. So it was a nice left brain, right brain combination. But when I was thinking about next steps after a few years in advertising, I realized there was so much more to the marketing mix besides just advertising. So the craft Foods role was a product manager role. I was working in the desserts division. Um, if you've ever eaten jello pudding or jello gelatin or had a Kool-Aid ice pop in the summer, that was me for a few years. And just fun product. You get to work on you know, products that are made for families and kids. And uh, it was a great way for me to learn way more about marketing, pricing and distribution and packaging design and more market research than I would have gotten had I stayed just in advertising. But again, the geography called us out to the West Coast, and uh, as our family was growing, we wanted to be back out in the Northwest, and so Coca-Cola offered a great chance to move geographically, but it also offered a chance to be with an absolutely iconic brand. I mean, Jell-O's iconic, but I think we would probably agree its best days are probably behind it. But Coca-Cola was a global iconic business and my role there was as a marketing manager in the fountain division. So, And that was really the backbone of the company for years was Coke served in cups. Over time bottled and canned products have taken them over, but I got to work with stadiums and movie theater groups and all kinds of different fast food accounts, restaurant accounts, everywhere Coke was served in a cup. But, man, one thing you learn at Coca-Cola is the incredible power and, and the need to, to um, take care of a brand equity. You're a steward of it. It's handed to you by your predecessors and you hand it off to your successors. But Coca-Cola is just an unbelievable global icon. You say you work there and people almost always smile. And it's a fun product to work on and I liked it a lot. Uh, But the move to St. Michelle, as I said, after a few years at Coke, was kind of prompted by Mm -hmm. the Coca-Cola's desire to get all of its West Coast people down in Southern California. So the wine business was really a quick education. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's it's still going on. It's one of the great things about wine is you can learn as much as you decide you want to learn. And that really appealed to me.
1: So you talked earlier about coming into that without a lot of wine knowledge and, and, and being kind of brought to speed. So tell me about starting to learn wine and what were the things that excited you about wine as you started to learn about it and what was the kind of the, the path to education for you? hmm Yeah. Good question, Rich. I don't know that there's any product
2: category that I've seen that is as demanding of a management challenge as wine is. It It really is five businesses kind of rolled into one. You've got to farm or there will be no raw material. You've got to process the raw material and make the wine that you're a manufacturing business. Number three is you, you have to have a hospitality function now. You've got to be able to serve guests. Number four, you've got to have a sales and marketing capability for those people who will never come to your winery and fifth and final is sort of everything else compliance and tax and IT and legal and HR it's five really distinct management disciplines that tests any professional manager that really appealed to me it was also really fascinating to be in a business that operates on the seasons of the year the way our great-great-great-grandparents did you're part of the cycle and one of the other things that I noticed, whether it was in Washington or in Oregon, or really anywhere around the world, wine vectors in culture and history and gastronomy and uh, you know, sensory aromatics and, and perfumes and taste profiles, it integrates so much that's great about a moderate, temperate, elegant, sophisticated kind of lifestyle that how could you say no to that? You eat and drink awfully well and you get invited into this fraternity and it's just an absolutely top drawer assortment of people around the world. That's true. Um, And once you're in it, boy, I'm trying to think and you meet very, very few people who get into wine and leave. It's pretty rare. It's a pretty unique business and uh, one where you, as I say, you can learn as much as you decide you want to learn and uh, you'll just keep growing in it.
1: So tell us a little about your time at Chateau Saint Michel. Uh, you obviously mentioned kind of the big, the big, the big player in Washington wine. So tell me about what, as you entered into that business there, what they what they looked like at that point, and what your role was in moving them forward. Yeah, they are. Um,
2: when I joined them, and still to this day, the company with its multiple brands in California, Oregon, Washington, also its relationships with wineries around the world that it imports into the US. It was a operation of scale that was just unlike anything in the, North, the Northwest had ever seen. My friends who are still there often call me and say, God, are, are you still in Oregon? and they'll give me their latest sales figures. And the Chateau Saint-Michel company is three times as large as our entire Oregon industry. While there's pluses and minuses there, when I came to Saint-Michel, it was a company that was primarily built around the core brands of Columbia Crest, Chateau Saint-Michel, and a few others, but over time, we were able to grow it with brands like Col Solare, which was a really unique, innovative joint venture with the Antonori family of Tuscany, their first venture into Northwest wines. We were able to secure import rights for the famous Villa Maria wines of New Zealand, for the Torres wines of Spain, uh, I got to introduce products like North Star Merlot, which was a brand new brand. So it was a really interesting chance, kind of like my general foods or craft foods experience, where it's a multi-branded portfolio assignment. And the scope and scale of the organization is such that what you work on can be muscled into the shelves. It can get to the marketplace. So many early stage and mid sized companies in our product category just really battle to get the attention of distributors and retailers and then consumers. But at Chateau-Saint-Michel, you really had the resources and a sales organization that can commercialize new product and existing product ideas. So I learned an awful lot about food and wine pairings and about all the production things I didn't know about, you know, really how little water a grapevine really needs. And then you learn all the things that are so counterintuitive, like why are lower crop levels sometimes better than higher crop levels? And of course, it often can mean concentrated flavors and aromatics. But it's counterintuitive to the economics of running a farm. Wouldn't you want massive yields? You do if you're making a commercial scale wine that hits a certain price point, but for truly fine wine, some of the you know, incongruities of our category, like not really watering your plants until there's a deficit that you can measure. You don't want to fuel excessive canopy. You want to fuel fruit. That means sometimes being stingy with water, which takes some getting used to. But I learned a lot too about uh, fermentation sciences and, um, you know, all the wine jargon, pump over versus punch down. Um, and as I say, just a fascinating category to learn. So I was just soaking up all that and mm-hmm. learn from some super, super people in Oregon and in
1: Washington. You talked a little bit earlier about, uh, about not necessarily coming into wine specifically for wine. I'm curious about, as you got into wine, how it compared to Coca-Cola. How it compared to Craft? Like, what is there something unique about wine versus other products of that scale? It's a great question, Rich. Probably a few things come to mind. One
2: is the just the emotional investment and attachment people have to wine that's different than other things they consume. I mean, we can all think of friends probably who have maybe gotten married at a winery or in a vineyard. That didn't happen at other companies I worked at. We've probably met people who build their vacations around going to wine regions of the world. I never knew anybody who wanted to go plan their vacation around visiting Coca-Cola bottling plants. That wasn't their thing. But you get emotional attachment to the place and the product and um, the food the wine goes with and the experiences that you have when you give yourself over you know people joining wine clubs there isn't a there isn't a, a jello club that i'm aware of but i'm sure somebody online is trading great recipes but it's it's a product experience it's not a lifestyle experience as i say you get to eat and drink really well you get to meet some fascinating people from around the world and go to some amazing places around the world wine just brings people together and also wine is something that is so anchored in our place that you know when you've had a memorable wine you remember when and where that happened or when you put a bottle of wine on the table for friends they want to know where is it from what's its story and it links you to place and site and location in a way that very few product categories do. So it just works on so many levels but there's just a different strands of that emotional attachment that
1: make it a really enduring category. See, you mentioned your next step was, was going to Starbucks. So uh, as you said, uh, some similarities there. Uh, tell me about working in coffee versus working in wine. And while you were there, did you find yourself thinking you'd go back into wine at some point?
2: Yeah, when I came to Starbucks, I was in the Seattle's best coffee division. And that was, as I say, there were some interesting similarities there. I mean, coffee, um, coffee beans after they're separated from the cherry, they're surrounded by pulpy fruit material. After they're surrounded, uh, after they're they're separated from the cherry, and they get to bake in the sun a little bit, and they cure. They actually do under, undergo a kind of fermentation process, um, but all the aromatic and and sensory flavor differences that are in coffees and all the geographies that are involved, Kona, Guatemala, you know, Java, Brazilian. Again, coffee is so part of culture and coffee is often uniquely differentiated by the source of its growing. So people will ask for Kona coffee by name, or if they have a lot of money, they'll ask for Jamaican Blue Mountain coffee. But what I was learning in that job that was unique was retail dynamics. Starbucks does a lot of things really well. One of them is they know how to commercialize retail operations, systematize them, uh, replicate them, um, measure them, and then also diversify into drive-through formats or airport formats we used to joke that during those expansion years, it wasn't uncommon for someone to make a, make a comment that they were worried we might open a Starbucks in the bathroom of their favorite Starbucks because there was just that kind of proliferation going. But I, I learned um, a lot about, again, flavor and aromatics and about pairing wines with desserts in a way we did it with foods and wine. But one of the, couple of the big, big differences that stood out immediately from wine is coffee somewhat like beer. Coffee is a freshness paradigm. Wine is an aging paradigm. Coffee is usually available pretty much right now. Wine you've got to wait a little bit for. If you've ever been to a cupping or seen somebody do a cupping, the way coffee buyers evaluate beans before they make a buying commitment, there it's totally different than a wine tasting. We're swirling and sniffing and spitting and, trying to think of better adjectives than whoever's next to us and we're recording these things in books. A coffee cupping is a round table, a lazy Susan, cups going around to different buyers, each buyer with a uh, spoon. They take it in so fast, slurp it, spit it out so fast, it, I couldn't even, I never learned that. It's still as messy as wine, you still gotta you know, wipe your lips after you're done but a coffee cupping is a totally different experience. It's instantaneous exposure and then it's gone and you're on to the next one. So there's not as much savoring. Even though they talk about entry and mid palate and finish, you gotta be awfully good. I never got that good. I was never as fast as them and I was never as good, but it was, it was a really great business to learn. And again, like Coke, it's another iconic
1: product that I was glad, really glad to be a part of. So tell me about the, the Oregon Wine Board. Obviously, you mentioned you're, you're, you're all, all these huge corporations you're working for and, and large businesses. Um, when the Oregon Wine Board posting came up, when you, when you noticed it, what uh, was appealing to you about it? Yeah, good question, Rich. Um, it was in a period of
2: turmoil, a little bit of turmoil, um, which was not uncommon for 2011, you know. Um, but it was in a little period of turmoil, the person who had held the role had been in the role less than a year. The person who had it before then was about five or six years, which is about probably normal. But um, so I was a little bit worried about coming into something that was a little bit unstable. But what was hugely appealing to me was again, the chance to return to where I had been raised, the chance to return to an industry, as I said, that we had really admired. And the world was starting to admire Oregon. When the Drewen family invested here in the mid eighties, that really put Oregon on the map and the success of, adi- of additional investments that came, including the Chateau Saint-Michel investment and others, really made it clear that Oregon, despite its relatively small size, were only about one and a half percent of the wine made in the U.S. Forget the world, one and a half percent of the wine made in the U.S. We have a far, far, far outsized footprint in terms of wine quality and reputation for excellence and consistent excellence—that really, I knew I wanted to be a part of it. Saint Michelle, we never competed really in the boxed wine segments or the super inexpensive segments of the wine. It was all, uh, wine world. It was always fine wine, and that's where Oregon's niche was, and where it was performing, and where the world was recognizing it could compete. So that made it a really attractive job and you know you never want to walk into total chaos uh, and i didn't but it is sometimes good to come into a situation where there's an acknowledgement that okay we're in a transition we we really need to improve Mm -hmm. if you're coming into something where you're just the dials are already set and you're just maintaining systems that's a little probably less invigorating than being a part of a transition and a a turnaround, is what a banker would call it. So we were turning around the Oregon Wine Board operationally, but the industry we served needed no turning around. It just needed amplification and, and support.
1: So tell me about the the first year on the job. What did you what What did it look like as you walked into it, and what did you kind of set as your first goals or sort of first milestones? Sure, it was my first time in a not for profit,
2: and if you know a little bit about the way the Wine Board is set up, it is uh, twenty years old right now. In two thousand twenty three, it's twenty years old, but it had been founded as what's called a semi independent state agency. It was gobbledygook to me um, because I had only worked in corporations, some publicly traded, some not. But semi-independent was brand new to me. Um, There was a political nature uh, to the job. We are funded primarily by taxes that grape growers and winemakers pay on every ton of grapes grown or grown and crushed in Oregon and so it was the first time being responsible for such a diverse constituency when you've got people's tax money you have something that maybe they wish they had back and boy a lot of people had great suggestions on what the wine board should do our our mission in the founding legislation is to fund scientific research to invest in marketing and public relations and also we've we've bolted on an educational component to our mission But coming into an an organization that was 20 years old and it had some good successes, but um, was really a new experience for me serving a statewide constituency of such diversity. Growers have very different needs and worries about their farming economics and pests and viruses than do winemakers who are focused on getting their wines to market. How are they gonna develop and nurture customer relationships? Um, you know how are they gonna produce and handle the fruit that they're getting how can they differentiate themselves so it was really a learning curve in um, working with a diverse constituency I made it a commitment to get around to every single region of the state where wine grapes were being grown and wine now touches every one of Oregon's 36 counties not necessarily vineyards but whether it's wine sales wine production vineyards Um, Wine tourism experiences, we we now touch every corner of Oregon. Um, And then, in addition to getting to know the community I was serving, I really had to start assembling my team around those kind of imperatives, marketing, research, education, and PR. So getting the right people. in place and we, I inherited some super, super smart people with great institutional memory and we just supplemented some of their strengths and uh, it was a team of about seven when I came in and now 12 years later we're, we're only eight but the industry has just skyrocketed ahead of us in terms of accelerated growth so probably some additional staffing will be a big priority for my successor.
1: Tell me about the, you obviously mentioned the diversity of, of people of, throughout the state, throughout the different roles, throughout the different sizes. Uh, you start, how did you wrap your head around that and how did you start to find ways to appeal, appeal to the to the wide variety of constituents? Well, I always kind of joke, at least I hope it's a joke, that uh,
2: appealing to the diversity of a super broad constituency is it takes a, a lot of doing. I, um, someone said, I hope you don't start your own car. Uh, <laughs> or, uh, you know, do you have a food taster? Because you know, nobody was ever that nasty. But the diversity in our community kind of had three expressions, and the way I mapped it out in my mind, Rich, was to think about, first of all, growers and winemakers, they're both interdependent but pulled by dramatically different economic realities. The ne- next level of kind of diversity and differentiation was the regionalism. Our primary growing region, and we're sitting here today in, in you know the epicenter of the Willamette Valley, which for almost 60 years now has really been the main locomotive of Oregon's wine industry. That the, the advanced life stage and the recognition and acclaim for the wines from this region have moved ahead a little bit of many other regions of the state. And for some, outside the Willamette Valley, having the Willamette Valley be the locomotive is a huge positive. It serves almost like a snowplow. plow. It, it opens up market opportunities for others. But not everybody viewed it that way, as I quickly learned. Some people feel that the Willamette Valley may have gotten some favored treatments or some advantages that maybe their region didn't have. So the regionalism, in addition to the growers and the winemaker uh, issue, that was the second level. And probably the third level, Rich, of kind of differentiation and diversity would be in scope and scale of operations. And there are large vineyards, mid-sized and small vineyards, same on the wine side. The way I tried to explain that and rationalize that when I was talking to people is just as in Washington or the Napa Valley or Tuscany or Bordeaux or New Zealand, you, you really do need to thrive at both ends of that spectrum. Wines that can achieve scope and scale production efficiencies can often hit sharp price points and can penetrate the mass market in a way that small early-stage or mid-sized family businesses with lower production levels can't. So there is a, um, you know, I use that word, that snowplow effect, you know, they, they, they can open up market opportunities and get people introduced to Oregon who may not ever come here because those wines can make it to the shelf. I mentioned Chateau-Saint-Michel sales organization, for example, getting Erath wines to the shelf. At the same time, the largest wineries, not always, but often have a difficult time getting the really, really lavish praise from wine critics that some of the smaller mid-sized or early stage family businesses can get. Wine writers just love that romance of the the, the farmer winemaker making a thousand cases, for example. And um, what I tried to promote as a unifying idea is that each side of that, con- each end of that continuum really desperately needs the other. The large wineries promoting the presence and the availability of Oregon need. 90-point wines from somewhere to get Oregon on the map of the best wine of the best you know wine lists in the world. In fact, I mentioned that uh, you know Oregon makes about one and a half percent of the wine here in the U.S. One of the things we look at every year is the write-ups that are coming out again in December, the best wines of the world. And Wine Spectator just again picked their top 100 global wines from anywhere in the world. So with one and a half percent of the wines made in the U.S. here, we're less than one percent of global production. We'd be lucky to get a couple wines on that list because it's a global Wine Spectator list. This year again we got seven. So it reinforced that point that Oregon uh, is overrepresented when critics say, "Where are the best wines in the world coming from?" Boy, that's a fantastic asset to have. My colleagues in California and Oregon, in Washington, I should say, my colleagues in other states just envy that because you you can't buy that, mm-hmm. and that instantly, that third-party endorsement, not only makes it easier for the scale, large production wineries to sell Oregon into the marketplace. But it reinforces to people around the world, wow, Oregon is a place to invest in. The Druins were super smart seeing that almost 40 years ago. And it's why the Jackson family came and Chateau Saint-Michel came and Santa Margarita and Bollinger and on at Foley family, on and on down the list, Louis Jadot. That kind of interest from very, very smart students of the global wine business isn't happening as much in Washington or Texas or any other part of the world. Oregon just has a a tremendous appeal. Um, That doesn't come without some downsides, but has a tremendous appeal in a very, very slow growing global wine category. Oregon is a growth stock, and that's why people are investing here.
1: So you talked about the the functions of the Wine Board, marketing, education, scientific research, PR. Um, obviously that's a lot to cover uh, in, in a large state with, a, as you mentioned, a variety of constituents. So tell me about uh, kind of starting to figure out uh, as you're turning this thing around, as you're kind of uh, giving the Oregon Wine Board going in the direction you wanna go, uh, first steps and biggest accomplishments in, in, in your time. Yeah, good question. We realized
2: And it's a perceptive question you you ask, Rich, when you kind of lay out what is kind of the breadth of our mission, four critical performance dimensions that we're measured on. my counterpart in Washington has an organization that's a little bit better funded because they have a little more tonnage tax than we do but it's also more narrowly focused up there they don't for example have an education function so the combination of a little more resource and a narrower more focused mission always made us go a little bit crazy in Oregon we were taking a smaller amount of money and spreading it amongst broader priorities but the way that we started to rationalize the four corners of that box you know was to first of all link our education much more closely to our trade marketing efforts the middle market of wine wholesalers and wine retailers is distinct from consumers you know consumers are buying for end-use they want to enjoy the wine Restaurateurs, retailers—they are buying it to sell it. If for them, it is a—you're—you're you're selling them the right to make money by selling to the consumer. They have a different set of dynamics. But at the same time, when you're in a region of discovery like Oregon, a small production, you need those middle market advocates on your behalf to be able to explain your story at tableside to the restaurant guest or in the wine shop to the shopper. You need to have that. So our education got linked to our trade marketing. Our PR got linked to our consumer marketing and that made a pretty tidy bundle. We didn't have enough money to do everything, but we also took the step of making the annual Oregon Wine Symposium the centerpiece of our industry education and industry outreach calendar. There is a trem- Washington doesn't have anything like it. California has a huge, a really good event, huge event called Unified. It is so big, it kind of loses its intimacy. But the symposium we were able to grow into what is now the Northwest wine industry's number one event, it's an event that global speakers want to come to again because it's in a state that is of high interest to the global wine category. So making the symposium really big and, and, and uh, uh, making it a unifying event was important when you serve a diverse constituency. Bringing programs like the Oregon Wine Month promotion into kind of full flowering, building trade dimension in there, PR dimension in there was important education as i mentioned usually focus first on trade later consumer but delivering tools that could help our industry too like we have on our website we've got a great set of profit planning workbooks that if you're a winery or a vineyard owner you can plug your business's price points and farming costs into this free set of workbooks and you can explore different scenarios of pricing and and economic inputs and see what your bottom line profit would be that's a great educational resource. Another great success we had was carrying the banner internationally. Our international programs are funded through a USDA grant and after years of just hammering at it, about six years ago we finally reached hundred thousand cases of international sales. That doesn't sound like big if you're California, like it that big if you're California. But then just five years later, we got to 150. Again, the global recognition and appreciation for Oregon's wine quality and the consistency of that quality has opened so many doors internationally that wouldn't normally be opened to a smaller region of discovery like ourselves. Um, So we had some good successes and just a a super team of people that I've been able to work with. We're a small staff, but but it's a really very bright uh, and engaged and energetic group of people who really are we kind of stand in awe of the people whom we serve who pay our salaries because as i said those five dimensions of the wine business don't present themselves in many other businesses the people who pay our taxes and our salaries are pretty much working seven days a week and it's hard to respect a community more than one that does that and is so proud of what they're doing so proud that they put their names on the label in so many cases, you know, you don't see that
1: and nobody I worked with at Coca Cola had their name on a label. You talked about the symposium and obviously the event, it's become, tell me about growing it and about determining how to make it the most valuable thing it could be given the parameters you had. Mm. Yeah,
2: this worked out really well. It's, um, again, another aspect of the appeal of Oregon was that we appealed the event we designed appealed to people who want access to our wine community, people who are selling wine labels or uh, glass bottles or oak, um, oak barrels or POS systems for tasting rooms. There's a whole army of suppliers eager to support a growing wine industry in Oregon. They made our trade show possible at the Oregon Wine Symposium. There's now over 200 exhibitors who are eager to get in front of Oregon wine business owners and decision makers to sell their products. That trade show helped us fund a dramatic expansion of the symposium. We no longer had to rely only on ticket prices that are charged to our constituency, growers and winemakers. We now had an additional revenue stream that let us make the event bigger. We knew we had to move it to Portland. It had outgrown its former home in Eugene. Um, when I arrived, people were telling stories about how they outgrew the ballroom at the Eugene Hilton. And some exhibitors were stuck under stairwells and, you know, out in the foyer and in the hallway. And so the success of the event had outgrown that. The funding stream that I mentioned through the exhibitors and through the ticket prices let us move to Portland, which was a bigger thing. But it also uh, enabled us to offer more hotel and restaurant choices. It also made it so much easier to get the press interested in the focal point of a -a one-time-a-year sort of, um, you know, I call it our Woodstock. It's our Burning Man. That's where the community comes together statewide and where so many writers and guest speakers want to get in front of that audience and and be a part of the Oregon wine story. Um, The other thing we did was we we really differentiated the the viticulture track, specifically building out more um, classes and discussion sessions around emerging topics like the red blotch virus or dealing with smoke in your vineyard. We had a separate, dedicated, clearly differentiated track to um, enological seminars. Again, how do you deal in the cellar with maybe smoke affected fruit? Or how do you deal in the cellar with diminished yields or, or a potential rot? How do, you, how, do you, how do you manage a sorting table efficiently? Um, and then the third and final track besides enology and vid, of course, was the business track. People wanting to know how can I be more efficient with my wine club? How can I be way more efficient with staff incentives? And we've added a program called Community Benchmark over the last couple of years. We were the first state to ever have a statewide commitment to Community Benchmark. And what it is, is it's a software platform that lets a business owner put his or her monthly sales numbers from their tasting room and wine club into a secure site and there they can see how their results compare to their neighborhood peers in their zip code and to statewide peers and to West Coast wine industry peers. Their numbers aren't visible to anyone but themselves, but they see how they compare to aggregated totals for other segments. That community benchmark thing is another example of where we can bring education to the symposium and make it a year-round set of continuing seminars. So symposium has been a real, real bright spot. And I know a lot of other states envy it and uh, we had to do it virtually during COVID the way everybody else had to do virtual events, but it has bounced back heroically. We'll get almost 1,500 people every year, which sounds small compared to California, but for Oregon, it's big. You get 1,500 people in Oregon to come to anything related to wine, and you're,
1: holy cow, you're doing something right. You mentioned earlier when you took over the job that the the kind of the gobbledygook title of of how the Oregon Wine Board had been founded and and starting to understand that process. So tell me about the kind of the political part of it and obviously of having the wine board itself made up of people from the wine industry. Uh, How did you kind of navigate all of of those kinds of things and and start to figure out how best to kind of spend your time and and your resources? Yeah, as as I mentioned, Rich, the Oregon
2: Wine Board was founded as a semi-independent agency in '03 by an act of the legislature. But for years before that, it had functioned in a similar way, but underneath the umbrella of the Oregon Department of Ag. It had been an advisory commodity board under the Department of Ag. In 03, many of our founding industry members thought there's a better way. We, We really should be independent. The Department of Ag has many priorities. Our industry is growing at such a clip that we deserve our own industry focus. Politically, the board is made up of nine governor appointees. Me and my staff at the wine board are not government employees. I tell people all the time, we will never get a government pension. We are employed by the board that can fire or hire us at any time. But the the nine directors who are industry volunteers, they put their name forward and every year the governor picks picks some folks off that volunteer list to serve. And it's a nine member board, but typically two or three people per year reach the end of their six year tenure and they make way for replacement. So there's a, a infusion of new energy and new blood all the time. Um, but the the political aspects of, of the role were largely expressed through what I described before, serving a diverse constituency on those three dimensions, growers and winemakers, regionalism, and then scale, businesses versus early stage and mid-sized family entrepreneurial ventures. That's where really the, the High Wire Act uh, was kind of, Uh, required. You just try to keep as many of the right balls in the air as you can and not drop too many of the wrong ones at the wrong time. It is interesting though, Rich, that California tried this idea of a statewide marketing and education and research board like 35 years ago. And after about three years ago, they said this is just not working for us. We're too diverse geographically. Napa was far ahead in its life stage and recognition that they didn't really wanna be pulling the rest of the state along. So they said, let's stop with a statewide commodity board related to wine. They still do have a statewide wine growers association focused largely on research, viticulture research. But the idea of a statewide marketing and research board did not fly for long in California. And it's possible that someday Oregon may get ready for that same kind of transition too. In fact, one of the things that I'm suggesting to our industry members as I exit is, it would be smart to find a way for the Oregon community every seven to 10 years to sort of re-endorse or revalidate the wine board. Because over the last few years, the kind of political realities that you were touching on in your question have really expressed themselves pretty vividly since 2019. Different parts of the state had different ideas about how to amend Oregon's really cherished labeling laws that have differentiated the wines made here. Other groups have wanted to make sure that the wine board is focused on its core mission. And so my job leading the Wine Growers Association, which was an advocacy and legislative group, while concurrently leading the wine board, those became in just too great of conflict and the Department of Justice, uh, the State Department of Justice, not the feds, urged us to separate those two and they were separate. But for eight years, I was concurrently in both roles uh, and that had some positives, but the the political wins that you referred to kind of just um, got us to the point where the organizations need to separate. Now we have two statewide lobbying organizations for our industry, still have the one marketing research and education group, Um, but we also have, uh, in a really positive development, so much more energy happening at the local AVA level. During my time here over 12 years, we've added seven new AVA's to our roster that now totals about 23. Those are both administratively kind of a head-scratcher at times. Is, is the new AVA really differentiated? But all that fades because a new AVA is a symbol to the world that we are learning more about our differentiated soil types, our differentiated microclimates, the differentiated ways that different clones of our anchor varieties can express themselves in different parts of the state. We're learning more about what we're farming here. And that is a positive.
1: You touched on a lot of the uh, kind of the marketing parts of things and the education. I'm curious about the research part. Obviously, the the other the other big piece of the Oregon Wine Board puzzle. uh, You mentioned some of the ongoing challenges in viticulture and enology, uh, smoke and climate and things like that. So, tell me about. Uh, the research that you've sort of backed and what advances you've seen while you've been in part of the Oregon Board, what advances you've seen in sort of the scientific backing of the wine industry? One of the things, Rich, when you think about the
2: research part of our commitment is it's impossible to give too much credit to the growers and winemakers who volunteer their time to our research committee. And it's interesting. I've talked about some of the, the different uh, segments of our community. I talked about that in three ways before. One of the most invigorating parts of our job is working with the 40 or so volunteers from all over the state, both growers and winemakers, large and small operations, who come together every year to allocate about almost $400,000 in industry tax money across a range of scientific projects. In 2018, we got almost all those people together for a two-day summit where we we hammered out a strategic plan for research. And the anchor elements of that plan are to direct Oregon wine industry investments towards things that help with climate adaptations, help ensure quality in grapes and in wines, help ensure that the farming economics can preserve themselves. One of the things that's kind of unique about Oregon's competitive position is, while we're small, as I've said several times, we compete in the upper range of the price points. Anybody standing in front of the shelf looking at a wine assortment will not find too many, if any, Oregon wines under $10 a bottle. You can get a can for about eight or nine dollars, but we are not going to um, be a low cost provider to the market anytime soon. We're more like a, maybe a, a Lexus than a, a Kia or a Hyundai, for example. That's just the way we're positioned. The cost of farming here and the yields and the weather that we get just leads us into that segment of the market. We don't have six tons per acre on an irrigated valley floor like you might in the San Joaquin Valley. Um, So our competitive position is based on quality. Our research program, using again the expertise of all those who volunteer their time and a working relationship with both extension and faculty members at Oregon State University that is envied up and down the West Coast. Uh, They are so, our research scientists are so embedded in our wine work um, that they're just, you can't separate them from the innovations in research. We're funding things on several levels. One is you've got to fund the crisis of the year, whether that is smoke or whether that is a red blotch crisis or a vine mealybug, mealybug. you have to work on those things. And we're super fortunate to have both world-renowned scientists at Oregon State and a really active participation with the Oregon Department of Ag on those kinds of true serious crisis issues. The other thing we try to invest in are things that are sort of medium-term important but not crisis. Things like helping address how farmers can improve profitability. A lot of that is moving towards smart studies of mechanization, using where we can, advanced technologies. And You'll see some vineyards deploying uh, robotics in the vineyard. There's a great uh, experiment going on with Willamette Valley Vineyards where they have a a vineyard crawler that goes through at night and it's robotically directed to cover all the rows at night. And it's hitting the vines during the most dangerous time of the growing season with nighttime ultraviolet light, which powdery mildew spores hate, but that is not economically to do that by hand. But that's an interesting way to use technology. And the other thing that we're investing in is some kind of farther looking or uh, more advanced research for the future things like how scientists can start to develop through some variations of gene editing grapes that might look no different and taste no different than grapes grown today but they would be hardwired to be more resistant to powdery mildew. We're also looking at things like barrier sprays that can protect fruit from smoke and hopefully discourage some birds who bring their appetites to the vineyard at the worst time every year. So some of those, there's a lot of different developments. Grapevine grapevine trunk diseases continue to be an issue for us. And we continue to invest in irrigation studies because everybody in the world is dealing with less water. And um, that is a really, nice opportunity for us to communicate how little grapevines really require, how little water grapevines really require and uh, it's a positive way for us to be good citizens and good farmers.
1: So you talked about taking over the wine board in a time of transition, and time of turnaround and now uh, you're kind of on your, on your way out. Uh, tell me about how you feel you're leaving the wine board. What does it look like today And what are the sort of the next, the next, what's this next phase going to look like? Mm. Good question.
2: Somebody joked not too long ago that they they would not want to be the one to take the job next, and that was a really nice compliment. But the wine board will be just fine. You're you're serving an industry that is so eager for whoever comes into my chair to succeed. They'll have tremendous support, and they'll have a great group of managers and board directors to work with. As I look at some of the, maybe to start with a little bit of the unfinished business, things that I wish I might have done uh, a little differently, I think there's a, a super important inflection point here or coming soon where, as I mentioned, the number of new AVA's coming in the state It creates uh, a little bit of tension because those AVAs deserve and want attention as separate entities, but with fixed resources sometimes you can't support everyone the way that you wish you could. So, I don't think I made quite as much progress as I wish I could have at developing a, a funding or a programmatic architecture that could acknowledge what we really want to happen which is to have all these regions each shining to the maximum amount possible because each one is another door into the room for Brand Oregon. Um, One thing I'm really, really proud of that the market sales results that we monitor from, say, Nielsen when we monitor sales results, one of the things I'm really proud of is that in, in our marketing efforts, we are promoting Brand Oregon. For so many people around the world, the idea of wine from Oregon is still new. Although we've been doing it here for years, you know, um, it's still a new idea. Promoting that idea that Oregon not only makes and grows wine grapes, uh, makes wine and grows wine grapes, but that it does so at a level that the critics are recognizing far beyond what you might expect them too, as I mentioned with the Wine Spectator scores. We've, I think, done a really good job advancing brand Oregon as an entity that if you don't know yet about the Rogue Valley or the Willamette Valley, if you're starting to hear about Oregon, you're reading positive press stories. Retailers and wholesalers are starting to see Oregon consistently grow at a faster clip than wines from other regions of the world. So I think I, I leave that equity, that brand equity of brand Oregon in good shape. Um, I think I leave the symposium in very good shape. I think I leave our wine tourism economy, which is about 900 million dollars a year. Oregon's wine economy in total is 8 billion a year in total uh, economic impact in the state. Uh, Tourism is just about 11% of that at 900 million. That's an area where I would like to have seen us move a little more quickly to come out of COVID more quickly. The wine consumer is still a little bit distracted and not coming out as often for wine country visits as we would like, but we'll get them back. But that's something my successor will be focused quite a bit on is, again, Engaging the wine consumer in more direct relationships, whether through online marketing or more tourism marketing.
1: And a similar question, obviously, uh, you know, you you took over the wine board of rep at the same time the archive started in 2011, and we know that we've seen about a a doubling in size of the Oregon wine industry in that time. So, uh, obviously, growth has not been an issue. Uh, Tell me about. Outside of growth, what are the changes you've seen in in Oregon wine? What are the biggest kind of uh, growth points, evolutions in Mm -hmm. Oregon wine? And where do you see the industry headed next? Sure. We have just about
2: tripled in size when you look at the um, value of our grape crop, Um, the number of acreage of vineyards. Um, We haven't tripled in market share yet, but we have tripled in some important key dimensions. Uh, wine grapes are now one of Oregon agriculture's top 10 crops. So we've had some some very good growth. Sure. Biggest changes, ag- ag- again, the, um, the, the rise and the differentiation of our regions, uh, not only in the wines that they make, but in the demands that they have to be recognized as distinct and different. And all that is positive. Again, those create different on-ramps. We have um, also seen The category, the industry advanced on its life stage to a point where it's not unexpected, but um, some might call the early pioneers of the 60s and 70s sort of the the first wagon innovators, the people who really were told they were crazy and may have felt that they were crazy at some times, but they started something now that is, it's impossible to ignore, you know. the Oregon wine industry. But that has come with a a little bit of a distinction now. Any category goes through it. You have makers and takers. You have people who founded the business and now you have people coming to profit from it who will add their own uh, layers and texture and dimension to where Oregon grows next. But there's a, a very different kind of mentality when you have entrepreneurs who are invested here and when you have investors who are here seeking a return. Our colleagues in Napa have dealt with this for 20 years. If that transition is not managed carefully and thoughtfully, in a similar way, if the surge in tourism is not managed carefully and thoughtfully, you can see communities start to get less interested in having an explosive wine sector, they'll be dealing with crowded roads, they'll be dealing with speculative housing, where your workers can't really even live in wine country anymore. They're pushed so far out. You'll find the community start to fight back as they do in Napa now. Getting a winery permitted Napa in Napa County now, I'm told is a seven year undertaking if you can get it permitted at all. And when you start to lose your social license to do business in the communities where you want and need to do business, because this is where you're, you're not, I'm, we're looking out at the Stoller Vineyard, pretty tough to move a vineyard. So you're anchored to this site, you want to be a good neighbor. Those are some of the big challenges the industry will face. Smart tourism that brings in all voices that need to be part of the ecosystem. Our smart research and investments in climate adaptations that will make our grapes still coveted as they are not only by in-state winemakers, but we see record number of tons going to winemakers in other states who want Oregon because they see it growing faster than the, wine, uh, the wines that are bottled and labeled from other regions. Um, so those will be some of the challenges that I think my successor um, will deal with. Some good aspects of growth, but also um, more, more vocal, sub-constituencies from within the community that will take some
1: time to knit together. What made you feel like it was time to move on from the wine board and and what, if anything, have you planned to do next? Yeah, this has been,
2: as I say, I'm in my 13th year now and when I came into the role, I I knew I was entering something a little precarious. As I mentioned, my my predecessor had been here about a year. and uh, I had been told by somebody who had held nonprofit jobs before, oh, these things are generally five year jobs. And the five year mark came and went, and I really enjoyed it, and we were having some good momentum. The 10 year mark came and went, and we were right in COVID. COVID did not seem like a good time to leave, but I had kind of set 10 years as a good time. Um, And so as I look ahead, I think I hand over uh, an organization and a set of programs that are in pretty good shape. Um, In any job, you sort of start to get the same year over and over, as dynamic as my job is and our industry is, you start to get a little bit of the same year repeated over and over again, and it's it's really valuable to step away and sharpen the saw. Um, I hope to stay in wine, And there are some great opportunities if one were willing to move far from where I love living. So that's not really appealing to me. But I have a chance now with our kids grown and gone to now do something I want to do rather than something you do when you're supporting a family. And for me, that will probably, it probably will be in a nonprofit space, but maybe focused on education or something where I feel I can do something really, really good. It might be an ag assignment, I don't know. But um, I'm going to be careful and thoughtful about it and uh, just take away so many unbelievably great memories of, of this time and this community and friendships that I'm absolutely going to keep up all around the state and all around the industry for years. There's just nothing like this community.
1: So, last question for you. As, as you look back, and this can be a, a wine board question or not, but what are you proudest ever. What do you feel like is your best accomplishment to to this point? Mm. It's been interesting, Rich. In the six months since
2: I told the industry that I was leaving, um, the the outpouring of affection has just been fantastic. And, you know, you probably don't get that in a lot of jobs. So I've had this six-month victory lap, which has just been fantastic. But a couple of the things that I'm really proud of are that our work really resonated with so many early stage and mid-sized business owners. We couldn't do everything we could to ease the competitive pressures and strains they face, but we delivered so much of value that helped their business. And they expressed that, but even above that, One of the things that I really am proud of is I often hear, hey, you know, thanks for your service, Tom. You really, you know, it was not an easy job. But one of the things they almost always say is, man, you had a great team. And I not only leave behind a great team, but I had just a, we had a super team, great professionals. We hired you know, our first professionals in finance, people who are experts in social media far beyond what I will ever be, uh, a master of wine who directs our educational effort, um, the kind of person that my colleagues in other states said, how did you get that? How did you get these? We have an international marketing manager who knows just about every important buyer around the world because she's been in the role 10 years. I hand off a team of experts that is just poised and ready to help the industry accelerate even more. And that takes time to build, but my successor is going to benefit from that the same way I benefited from some of the great people that my successor had hired, my predecessor hired.
1: All right. So the questions that I have for you, anything I didn't ask that I should have, anything we didn't cover here today that you'd like to cover? First of all, good questions. Yeah, really
2: good questions. A, a couple things that come to mind that maybe not everybody would know who would buy this. I think I refer, who would view this. Um, I think I referred to it, but our industry's growth over 40 years has been fueled by the business owners themselves. There are not lavish checks being written by anybody in Salem to fund this $8 billion wine business. It's funded by the industry. Uh, and as you heard me comment, that's one of the things that makes a really diverse and vocal constituency super animated. Um, it also is what makes the wine board kind of a Rorschach test in the sense of their tax money is in your treasury and you're responsible for it, but they all see and hope what they wish the wine board could give them in their hopes and dreams. So you're they're projecting their wishes onto it and you try to fulfill as many of them as you can. Um, and I'm not sure that's always widely appreciated. And maybe the other thing that I just want to underscore is the extraordinary position that Oregon is in in terms of global recognition right now. I mentioned many of the families that have invested um, in Oregon, but that, that level of attention goes beyond that. The vision that our some of our first wagon pioneers had over 20 years ago to found the Oregon Pinot Camp, is is impossible to understate. That's limited to the top wine buyers from around the world every single year. One of the first things anybody who works in wine and who doesn't live here, but works in wine will ask when they find out you're from Oregon, how do I get invited to Pinot Camp? They know it is a best of show experience. It is a bucket list item. It's a charm they want on their charm bracelet. And it is an unbelievable equity. And that was not created by the wine board, that was founder, winery founder driven. Um, You know, same with um, Salude, one of the very first programs in America of its kind where the industry comes together to raise funding and it's now well over a million to cover the uncompensated care costs for medical and dental for vineyard workers, that started from the industry. The Oregon Wine Board stood and applauded, but that was going from industry energy. And now we have new expressions of, of industry innovation, the Queer Wine Fest, ivoy we have the Oregon Wine Experience in the South, we have so many. Uh, Different doors being created for people to come into our community. Uh, We have a level of board diversity we've never had before on the wine board. Um, I I mean the board of directors. That can get overlooked. But those are some of the things that I, I view as really positive. Both that we advanced at the wine board and that we supported while others around us in the ecosystem advanced it. But no, those are good questions you had, Rich.
1: Well, thank you, I appreciate that. and Thank you so much for your time and for sharing stories with us. Thanks for your service to the industry as many other people have said. And I also want to thank Hannah and Michelle at Stuller for making this happen and giving us the space today. We really appreciate that as well. And thanks for doing this series, Rich. It's irreplaceable. Thank you so much, we'll let you off the hook.
0: Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast.